HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed healthy food that actually tastes good. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code TASTEPOD, T-A-S-T-E-P-O-D, all one word, for 25% off your order. Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens. I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Heritage Radio Network's Summer Membership Drive. We're fundraising to support each of our 35 weekly shows, including mine, A Taste of the Past. And today I have a special giveaway for people who are the first to join up and become a member of Heritage Radio Network. Remember that Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported radio network, and we really rely upon you to keep us going. If you become a member today and scroll down to what your membership is designated for and put in my show, A Taste of the Past, I'll send you a copy of Eaton, the food history magazine, and a personalized thank you note. Please help us support Heritage Radio Network. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and you'll see the donate or join button in the upper right-hand corner and the rest is up to you. Any amount you give is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Hi, this is Linda Palaccio. 
Welcome to A Taste of the Past, our weekly journey through culinary history. And, you know, we think we're pretty cutting edge here doing our podcasts and internet radio shows about food, all aspects of food. But did you know that from the 1920s to the mid-30s, and then some, there was a food radio show called Housekeeper's Chat, hosted by a popular phenomenon called Aunt Sammy. I say phenomenon because in fewer than two years, the program was broadcast on over 90 radio stations in almost each of the 48 states. Yes, 48 states. Remember, it was the 1920s. And radio was still fairly new as a means of mass communication. This was big. The intersection of new technologies in food and science and media together having an impact and influence on American foodways. Whether it was propaganda or mass education and communication, we're not sure, okay, it's up to you. But one thing is certain from the reactions of the listeners at that time, it was entertaining. And it was all behind the guise of the friendly neighbor lady next door, Aunt Sammy. The University of Arkansas Press series on food and foodways has recently published Justin Nordstrom's informative and provocative book, Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes, the original 1927 cookbook and housekeeper's chat. The series editors say the book provokes curiosity into the long-standing relationship between media, celebrity, and identity in American f- popular food culture. <laughs> so timely in today's world. Justin Nordstrom is Associate Professor of History at Penn State's Hazleton Campus and is the author of Danger on the Doorstep, Anti-Catholicism in American Print Culture in the Progressive Era. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks, Linda. Thank you for having me. It, this book is, yeah, well, it is first charming, and as I said, a little provocative. <laughs> well, not a little provocative, and but mm, and instructive. I mean, informative mm-hmm. um, with all the recipes, and it is just surprising. Now we know that Betty Crocker had started around that time a little bit, but right. But um, this book is a bit, quite a bit different from that, and in many ways. And I'm really, really psyched to talk about the effects of this radio communication on food and household management. But first is the very important question, who was Aunt Sammy? Well, I'm glad that in your introduction you described her as a phenomenon, because the first thing that uh, you should know, or or anyone that picks up the book should know, is uh, she was fictional. Uh, Aunt Sammy was a uh, fictional persona that was created by... uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, and their Bureau of Home Economics. And her role in the uh, radio program Housekeeper's Chat was to uh, essentially be a spokesperson for USDA research that was especially designed to be used in the home. And so uh, beginning in 1926, she uh, was part of this program. And what the USDA tried to do was to create uh, a way to promote mainly recipes, but also a whole host of advice about uh, designing the home, caring for children, uh, entertaining, 
everything designed for uh, the listener, but through this chatty, whimsical person and all of the supporting characters that she assembled around her. So you could think of the radio program as a little bit like a radio variety show with Aunt Sammy as like, you know, the, the centerpiece, the showpiece of this program. And along the way, she would uh, tell you how to make dinner or provide recipes uh, for school lunches. And so the two things really work together, the USDA's research in home economics and then the, the packaging of that through the character of Aunt Sammy and all of her various stories. And did she pronounce herself Aunt Sammy? Well, or I think you're you say aunt, I say my, aunt. <laughs> yeah, well, you're hearing my Boston accent, right. which right. is uh, traveled right. around the country. But what's what's interesting, you know, you mentioned that, um, Linda. But I should also say that we don't have any. Uh, at least I have never found any surviving audio transcripts. Oh, that's what I was going to. I was going to yeah. ask you if you had an mm-hmm. opportunity to listen to any of the original broadcasts. Right. Well, I haven't, and it would have varied depending on where we are. So, sure. uh, in the 1920s, uh, there isn't yet the technology of a single syndicated voice. So, the voice of Aunt Sammy in, say, Minnesota would have sounded different than Aunt Sammy's voice in Georgia or Texas. And so the USDA was able to distribute transcripts to local radio stations, uh, but there was not one single voice um, for, for Aunt Sammy. So even if, you know, I wish that these recordings existed, uh, but even if they had, I would have been hearing, you know, a kind of uh, single voice as opposed to the, the many people that made up the collective Aunt Sammy. Mm. So in a sense, she wasn't one person. She was a fictional persona, or I like the way you put it, a phenomenon that was really a compilation from lots of different people. The USDA's uh, offices and researchers in Washington, and then each radio station's individual uh, announcer. Right. So they, the individual stations found these women to be the voice, and obviously must have done a pretty good job of matching them up so that they all had the same the same effect on people. I mean, the friendly neighbor next door. I mean, that, that's sure. what keeps being mentioned, that she's the, the friendly neighbor next door. In fact, one of my alternative, my, uh, my alternate um, introductions to the show was, mm-hmm. and then we can talk about that too, and the USDA, which is I'm going to next, is, was mm-hmm. I would say I found something, I would, I would have said something that I had found written about by, in one of the blogs on radio history, and it started out saying, farming in the U.S. was once a lonely affair. Staying in touch mm-hmm. with the world was <laughs> difficult, blah, blah, blah. But with right. radio, people could hear mm-hmm. a friendly voice on the radio in their home and be in touch with what's happening. Now that, so that brings me to the question of the USDA. They obviously were, it was, from what I read, it was um, their mission through one man to, to start this radio program and get it on the air. And what what in particular were they seeking to do? That's a great question, and it's what led me to this research. I, I didn't start off um, you know, thinking that I would research you know, radio. Um, I, I stumbled upon this because my, my earlier research was on the First World War, and you know, we're commemorating that uh, as we speak. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll uh, commemorate the 100th anniversary of the armistice you know, later this year. And during the, the 19-teens, even before American soldiers show up in large numbers, 
the USDA and the American government in general is, is tremendously involved in mobilizing uh, and conserving food and increasing uh, farm yields. And so during the 19-teens, the USDA had a, a very you know, uh, significant role, this slogan of food will win the war. But my question then became, well, what happens next? You know, how do you go from, you know, being such a, a presence in American society, uh, what does the USDA do? How does it reinvent itself? And the idea of that reinvention is popularized in this, this song, and it speaks to your concern, too, about, you know, breaking the loneliness of the, the farming communities, um, because there, there's a popular vaudeville song, How Are You Going to Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Paris? <laughs> and what... You know that that is taken as a kind of uh, slogan. In reality, that that phenomenon of leaving the farm and, and so forth had been going on beforehand, but it's popularized in that song. And I think the USDA, through Housekeepers Chat and through its radio service in general, is trying to address that. Um, it's trying to create a new uh, type of mission for itself after the First World War, and it's also trying to help out. Uh, individual farmers. The idea that, and I think this is analogous to you know, the end of the Second World War in the 1940s, you know, your life will not be like your parents and grandparents. You will have all of this modern uh, technology, and that word modern is central to uh, Sammy's persona, and it's central to the USDA. Um, because it's showcasing not only the medium of radio, but using that new technology, which was incredibly popular in the 20s, to introduce a whole host of other technologies, uh, from linoleum flooring to rayon fabric and electrical appliances and fancy new waffle irons. Um, you know, Aunt Sammy, for all of her whimsy, for all of her kind of homespun, vaguely patriotic uh, witticisms, she has an important message to play in the American home, and, and that message is that to be modern is to embrace the scientific research of the Bureau of Home Economics, to trust in new uh, understandings of vitamins and nutrition and chemistry, but also to buy into all of the consumerism that, that also comes to define the 1920s and is, is transforming American homes. So I think that Aunt Sammy is, it, she's, she's interesting because um, she speaks to a kind of folksy, almost you know, quaint or old-fashioned uh, persona, but at the same time her message is also uh, emphatically modern at the same time. And yeah. so that's an interesting, I think, contradiction in her message. Well, and with everything she she talked about on the air from what your book um, uh, read, I mean, at that time, you say she, she, nutrition. She was really, um, the content was really concerned in the food portion about nutrition. And vitamins, for that matter, had only yeah. come about in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, That's right. The name wasn't even coined until, I think, the 1912, if I remember, one mm -hmm. of the shows I did on vitamins. <laughs> but, um, and, and for everything else she, she talked about, clearly her conversations on food were the most popular. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the USDA was, was smart, and they, they recognized that uh, there was a, a 
pressing concern. In fact, the very first broadcast from the radio service, even before it had settled on the name of Housekeeper's Chat, uh, <laughs> the very first broadcast started with the question, you know, what shall we have for dinner? And it pointed out that this is a question that confronts people, you know, 365 days a year. And um, gradually throughout the program, uh, Aunt Sammy's stories get a little chattier and she becomes a little more long-winded. But there is always that idea of uh, you know, centering the episode around a recipe. And one of her supporting characters, in fact, is simply called the recipe uh, specialist from the USDA. And so she, uh, she pretends as if she's having a conversation with a USDA recipe specialist, which of course is ironic because the people that are creating this program are recipe specialists. So it's almost <laughs> as if they're having a dialogue with themselves. And uh, you're right to say that she's talking about um, introducing the ideas of, of home economics, of nutrition, vitamins, but she's trying to do it in uh, a chatty and approachable way. And, and that's, um, that's the reason why I um, put together the book the way I did. Um, if you or your listeners were to simply look at the original 1927 uh, cookbook, which, which exists, and you know, it's, it's just a Google search away, um, the, what you would see is simply a list of uh, ingredients and cooking times for all of her recipes. And what would be missing would be all of the different stories and anecdotes and Aunt Sammy chatting with Uncle Ebenezer about uh, his various projects or telling her uh, son Billy uh, why he needs to eat this lunch at school. And so she's talking to her audience as if they are members of her family. It's as if she's inviting you into her living room to have these conversations. So when she talks about you know, the importance of vitamins or how much nutrition is in an eight-ounce glass of milk, you know, she's not doing it with dry statistics. She's doing it with stories and anecdotes, little jokes and asides, um, that she's, she's doing it to present the USDA's research it's kind of modern take on food and nutrition, but in a very approachable and accessible way. Well, and from reading her her little um, introductions, or actually their their kind of subcontexts um, to her recipes in some of the later editions of the book, I, I, she, she, she was pretty funny. I mean, I, were they all as yeah. funny? I mean, there was a script, right? But but I mean, there there was she used a lot of humor in some of the stories. Yeah. Um, but that's what we yeah. didn't. What we didn't mention was that it's Aunt Sammy's radio recipes was a separate entity, completely from the radio show Housekeepers Chat. Right. I think of it like a companion volume. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, here again, the, you know, the USDA is is being pretty savvy. Um, they're realizing that uh, these, this program was hugely popular, tremendously popular, uh, but the it wasn't practical. Uh, in many cases, to jot down all of the different recipes as they were being spoken. There's no way, you know, this is uh, cutting-edge technology in 1927, but there's no way to go back and archive her episode uh, the way your listeners could you know, listen to this conversation you know, over and over again. Right. Um, so what the USDA did was they also created a companion book. So the original cookbook, like I mentioned, was very bare-bones. Um, but hugely popular. I mean, I think half a million copies of the original edition were distributed, and 
Uh, even then, it required a second edition in the 1930s. So it was designed to be the, uh, the, the companion so that if you needed to refer back to her recipe on uh, you know, uh, candied sweet potatoes, you wouldn't have to remember several weeks earlier uh, how she described how to make the dish. But the, I think the analogy that works here is if you were to just read the cookbook without listening to the radio broadcast, it would be like reading Shakespeare by looking at the cliff notes, or I guess today I would have to say, uh, you know, reading the Wikipedia entry, uh, because you, you would get a list of characters and settings, just like Aunt Sammy would give you a list of ingredients and cooking times, but what you would miss, just like what you would miss by, you know, reading an abridged Shakespeare, is everything that makes it worthwhile, all of the witticisms and turns of a phrase, and like you said, the little jokes that she would include. So, um, really, I think that the popularity of the cookbook and the popularity of the radio program go hand in hand, that without one, the other would not have been successful. Right. But the book continued on long after the show was um, sure. had stopped, so it was, it was very popular. And it's interesting you say, you know, needing a guide, like needing a guide to Shakespeare or reading, you know, Dante or something. You have to know the politics behind the time. And she indeed was, you know, that she's often, what was she referred to as a jazz age Julia Child? Yeah. <laughs> right. you know, or interwar period... Um, you know, food uh, writer or talker. Mm-hmm. I mean, her job was was really um, even more essential during the Depression, obviously. Um, it was, yeah. However, you know, it's it's interesting that, um, uh, and this is almost, I, I, I feel almost sad to mention this, um, but what ends up happening to Aunt Sammy, and this is how I sort of wrap up my introduction, but, um, you know, Aunt Sammy's recipes in general are designed to be economical, uh, quick, fairly straightforward. There's not a lot of garnish, not a lot of, uh, I guess you could call it, aspirational cooking, uh, with a handful of exceptions. But it would make sense that during the Great Depression, Americans would would really um, embrace these, these recipes, inexpensive and uh, quick cooking and so forth. Um, and it's clear that Aunt Sammy is trying to help listeners you know, feed a family on a budget. Um, she's not using a lot of you know, glamorous ingredients, very few garnishes. However, I mean, the irony is that uh, if, if someone were to ask me, well, what happens to Aunt Sammy? The radio program continues. Uh, however, Aunt Sammy's name is simply dropped from the program. So eventually, uh, she has a more streamlined script, which is just mainly focused on recipes, and we lose some of her supporting characters. And then she just drops out of the program entirely. And that, um, in, in the book, I say that, you know, no reason was ever specifically given for that, but it might have been in conjunction with, um, you know, hearing FDR's fireside chats and hearing about, you know, the... Uh, uh, war brewing in Europe and seeing the you know tightening of the Great Depression, Americans didn't really embrace this kind of chatty, witty, and you know uh, fun character the way they did in 1927. So right. that's that's a, an explanation, but it's a guess because we're never given you know, the USDA doesn't give a specific reason why. Here's why we're omitting this character. Well, um, so 
Yeah. And to talk about her name, Aunt Sammy, um, there's, you know, it's, it's not, you don't have to use too much imagination to figure out who they're referring to as who's, who was her husband. Yeah. Uncle Sam, be, right? <laughs> yeah, Uncle Sam, right. I mean, it's probably the wife of Uncle Sam, could be the sister to Uncle Sam. Um, she never mentions why she gets this name, but you're right. I mean, the listeners clearly, you know, embrace this kind of uh, patriotic persona. And that's, I think, an interesting choice, because unlike other fictionalized you know, you know, female celebrity chefs like Aunt Jemima or Betty Crocker, um, Aunt Sammy is the voice of the U.S. government. I mean, mm. she's, she's not selling a, you know, a corporate product. She is uh, spreading the message of the Bureau of Home Economics. And that's, I think that's why it's fitting that she has that character. Yeah, I mean, I, as I was reading it and, and the comments and her recipes, it was basically like an on-air home economics course. You know, mm-hmm. you could study home economics by listening to the radio. It was, it was interesting. And, in fact... Um, the food is very interesting, and you, it's, you've got all of her recipes in here from, I guess, what, what period of time? The, uh, are these the early recipes, or are these the, the, the standard recipes that so were printed is, in, the, in the first edition? Correct, yes. Yeah. So the, these would have been the recipes that were on air from when um, Aunt Sammy first appeared in 1926, until the cookbook was released in 1927. So it's about the first year's worth of recipes. Uh, the USDA did produce a, uh, an elaborate, you know, kind of expanded version in 1931, uh, but that's not really included. And by the time you've read through you know, 200 pages of, of the book, you clearly have a sense of where Aunt Sammy is going with this. Right. Um, and if you've ever picked and, up... Bit, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I wanted to take a minute before I... I I forgot um, to thank the staff of the uh, National Agricultural Library. They're the ones that have housed this material and the ones that um, made the transcripts available. And uh, they're the place where the original uh, cookbook uh, was housed. So um, I know a lot of your listeners that are interested in in food history um, are familiar with the USDA, but this is a tremendous resource. Uh, They have a lot of uh, digitized archives, and uh, the staff is terrific to work with. So for for researchers in food history, um, think of it as a, a great place to go and learn about you know, America's culinary past. Right. So we're going to learn about what recipes she was instructing listeners to make in the 1920s when we come back after this brief break. Stay tuned. In episode 252 of A Taste of the Past, my guest was Anne Byrne, the New York Times best-selling author of The Cake Mix Doctor. And I talked to her about her newest book, American Cake. In American Cake, she surveyed the beginnings of cakes in America and the different countries and immigrants that brought their recipes with them that have now become traditional American cakes. Anne traces American cakes chronologically from the dark, dense gingerbread and the Martha Washington great cake used for election celebrations to the modern California cakes of orange and olive oil. 
If you'd like to try to make one of the early American gingerbread cakes, you can find everything you need at Bob's Red Mill. You can even update it with organic wheat flour, organic whole wheat flour in a gingerbread. Your favorite gingerbread recipe would make a facsimile of the nice, dense, rich cake that was made at that time. And after you listen to my interview with Anne, you'll be inspired to go to Bob's Red Mill and order some more. Go to bobsredmill.com and don't forget to use the code TASTEPOD, T-A-S-T-E-P-O-D, for 25% off your order. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the, the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Justin Nordstrom, and he has edited um, and compiled a new book called Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes, the original 1927 cookbook and housekeeper's chat. And Justin, um, the food, I mentioned that the, the, um, the recipes and the food, really, I was surprised at how many recipes are in here, and of course there were also a couple of, how many, I don't know how many menus, actual menu plans, um, several of those. But I did notice that you think, well, 1920s, the recipes look kind of similar to what we're eating now, but they're not really. There's, I, there's quite a difference I noticed. What, what did you notice about them? And you've cooked a lot of them. Um, I have, yeah. So um, what do you I, notice? So that's interesting you say that, Linda, because I... What, what struck me was how accessible they are. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really think that someone could open any page of Aunt Sammy's cookbook and find something that both sounded familiar and that they could cook with, you know, a quick trip to the neighborhood grocery store or whatever they have in their fridge in their pantry today. In fact, that's one of the things that I really liked about the book was that, you know, this is, I mean, I love reading very, very old cookbooks and looking at how, you know, medieval banquets were prepared and so forth. This is very much not like that. This is, uh, this is something that you keep in your kitchen on your bookshelf next to, you know, your favorite cookbooks and, and pull it out and, and make her recipes. But what's also interesting is the little differences. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, I decided to make, uh, for my son's uh, birthday, uh, pineapple upside-down cake. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I'll make Aunt Sammy's version. And so, uh, first of all, the way that she calls it uh, in her original book from 1927 is upside-down pineapple cake. And then later on, she calls it, uh, in the revised cookbook in the 1930s, a pineapple upside-down cake. And it... It struck me that what we think of as 
tried and true classic American recipe uh, would have been by the 1920s uh, something completely new and innovative because the technology to uh, process and can pineapple and ship it from Hawaii doesn't uh, really get started until the 20s. So um, the recipe was similar, even if she hasn't really settled on a name yet. And um, I, I that struck me as a little bit interesting because um, it reminded me the recipes kind of have a life of their own. And I like a lot of Sammy's recipes. Um, my favorite of hers is her cornbread recipe. And I have this great picture. It's uh, sitting on the desktop of my computer. And uh, it shows my son, who I sort of cajoled into making Aunt Sammy's cornbread recipe. Mm-hmm. And so he's holding the original cookbook in one hand and the cornbread in the other. Um, but this is what is interesting about it. It's, it doesn't use any sugar. And if you were to look at most you know, modern recipes today for cornbread, they would all include a variety of amounts of sugar. And in some ways, unless you come almost uh, like cake, unless yeah, you come from the deep was, south, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, right, right. Um, so this it tasted like cornbread. It didn't taste like you know a kind of corn infused cake. So, like I said, the recipes are familiar and accessible, with a few notable exceptions. Um, but they also are slightly different. Um, here's another example. If you were to go through your you know, shelf of cookbooks today, most recipes, whether you know, they're for a meat or vegetable dishes or something, many of them would include uh, garlic. It's a standard staple spice mm-hmm. that we all use in our kitchens today. Um, well, Aunt Sammy really had very few recipes with garlic, and she even had to take a letter from uh, one of her listeners in the 1920s, who asked Aunt Sammy, is garlic a respectable spice? And so she had to say, oh, yes, very much so, and here are some ways that you can use it. But I think I've counted, and there's only three recipes in her whole book of 200 pages that include garlic. So um, for modern uh, cooks, modern home cooks, I think uh, some of Aunt Sammy's recipes might you know, use a few dashes of things from your spice cabinet. But um, like I said, they're, they're all accessible, but then there's the exceptions, like her recipe for uh, calf brains and eggs or for pickled pig's feet. Now, so these are recipes that are certainly for the adventurous foodies out there, and um, that's one of the other things I liked about the book is that on one hand, you know, she has recipes for meatloaf and pot roast and all of the different things that, you know, you, you would consider classic Americana, uh, classic comfort foods. But the recipes are a little bit different than what we would see today. And then she has these other ones that are real showstopper recipes. Um, and what I love about this book is that it really does offer something for everyone. Um, if you know someone who's just getting started, you know, maybe getting their first apartment or something, they could open up this cookbook even if they've barely boiled water and be able to find dozens of recipes that, that they could cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, if you've got a, a veteran cook who's out to try the most you know, adventurous thing they can possibly find, well, that person could find something in Aunt Sammy's cookbook and say, well, that, that really is something I'd want to try out. Um, so that's one of the things that I love about the book, the, the range that she offers to, you know, to modern cooks. And 
it is interesting that it's been almost a century, uh, but her recipes really have, I think, you know, her book stands the test of time. Right. I, no, I agree that they are, uh, the the uh, majority of the recipes are very standard, as you said, um, <clears throat> Americana. They're very standard mm-hmm. American recipes and and very solid and obviously well-tested recipes from the USDA, mm-hmm. yeah. from the Home Economics Bureau. Um, and I, I, I like one of the first soups that she um, has in her book is a vegetable vitamin soup. <laughs> Not enough to just say it's a vegetable soup, but it's a vegetable vitamin soup. I was impressed that she was, at this time, um, in the 1920s, advocating that one did not cook the vegetables too long so that they didn't become mushy, that she wanted them to still be a little crisp. Now, how crisp that was, you know, it's hard to to ascertain from the recipes. But the one thing I, I did note in the majority of the recipes that I just got this overall kind of feeling from them, and you, you already mentioned that in a way, and that, that they were a little bland, just a little bland. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and also, I will say that my question um, next about food is like, who... Who were these shows really addressed to? That's a great question. Um, primarily, I think the answer would be uh, women, but not exclusively. For instance, we know that the, uh, there are letters from men, uh, and Aunt Sammy always seems to perk up when she res- responds to them on the air. Um, that, uh, so we know men listened as well as women. Um, but the main audience seemed to be um, women that had responsibilities both in the home and also to uh, raise children. So there's a good amount of information about about parenting and about sewing kids' clothing, packing school lunches. Most of Aunt Sammy's listeners, um, I wasn't able to fi- find a, a specific demographic that is um, – it doesn't seem that Aunt Sammy, Aunt Sammy does not expect her listeners to be growing their own food, even though the USDA is largely uh, trying to reach farming families, rural families. It does seem like Aunt Sammy expects her listeners to be buying their food at local markets. Mm-hmm. She um, does not rely heavily on seasonal ingredients. Uh, and that was a surprise to me. I thought to myself, well, this is a USDA program. It's uh, clearly reaching uh, farming communities, rural audiences. Perhaps there'll be a greater sense of, well, now that it's spring, you should cook these foods, or now that we're in the fall, here are some foods that are now available. Um, Aunt Sammy's reaching uh, an audience that is buying and not growing their own food right. for the most part, right. I would say. So... Um, and she has references, you know, the stories and anecdotes about going out in her car and, and um, you know, going to the fishmonger and so forth. So it's clear that Aunt Sammy herself is buying food. She, she gives customers advice about well, selecting the best products in the store. So that's, um, that was a surprise to me. I would say um, her, she wants her listeners to uh, have opposite cooking tendencies. So on one hand... Most of her meals, like we said, are classic Americana, inexpensive, uh, fairly straightforward dishes. But then she's got some, like, stuffed roast dishes for entertaining company. And she takes phone calls. This is, I think, uh, 
indicative of what she expects her listeners to do because she takes a phone call from a distraught woman who's throwing a dinner party and she wants to know what to prepare. And Aunt Sammy says, well, you should cook these five different courses and have this elaborate rib roast and so forth. So she also expects her listeners to not just prepare economical meals most of the time, but every so often pull out this amazing showstopper of a dinner. And so she clearly expects her listeners to have a sense of of culinary style, even if most of the time they're cooking in a strict budget. Right. So I would say most of her listeners are uh, like the two women that are associated with the USDA's uh, Bureau of Home Economics. Aunt Sammy's creators are uh, two women who spend their career writing for the USDA, uh, Ruth Vandeman and Fandy Yateman. And most of their listeners are primarily like them. Right. They Except that they are, were both working uh, women, and they weren't absolutely they yeah weren't homemakers. In, in a sense, yeah, they were they were careerists. They were college educated uh, working women who made a career at the USDA, and that might have been uh, kind of anomaly in terms of um, you know that might not have been representative of Aunt Sammy's listenership. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're there is not a sense of uh, regionalism, not a sense that, okay, we're going to promote the, uh, you know, this week we're going to look at the cooking of the American South, or, you know, next week we're going to take a look at this particular style of ethnic cooking, or, you know, looking at immigrant communities and how they prepare food. That was not a part of the USDA's uh, mission and not a part of Aunt Sammy's uh, broadcast. And so uh, they're mainly speaking to, uh, I would imagine, an audience of uh, native-born, English-speaking women, women that had enough um, money to afford to shop for their ingredients and afford a fancy new radio. So there is a sense of um, perhaps a a middle-class bias in some of what Aunt Sammy was saying. Yes. No, I I definitely found that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, this is not this is not kind of aspirational cooking. You know, this is not, uh, you know, the, the cooking that's going to cook your way into the upper crust. Um, so she's also, I think, reaching out to um, you know homemakers on a budget. Right. Um, a lot of meat. Of course, you know, our, our dinner plates are gradually changing, but there this was definitely meat as the center of the dinner plate um, type of of meal planning. A lot of cuts of meat, large cuts of meat that. You said we're in the entertaining section, but also for general meals that um, that I found kind of surprising. But then the USDA was just coming into control of the of the meat industry, um, and so you know they were they were grading the cuts of meat. That uh, that makes sense. That you know that certainly made a lot of sense when I looked at those. Um, but some pretty fancy meat cuts of meat. You mentioned the you know the the uh, bone roast, the stuffed breast of veal. I mean, how often do people make that today? You know, that's that's a right. pretty fancy dish there, um, and that was that was included. But then again, the um, nutritional meals on a budget. She they weren't excessive. Nothing is excessive in the yeah. book. I, I found that to be so. And, um, and that, that's true of her uh, of, of her sweet dishes too, of her of her desserts. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're. Uh, I'm not really a, a very experienced baker, but I found her recipes for desserts 
um, really accessible. And so what is true, I think, of what you're saying with, with the meat dishes is also true of her, her sweet dishes and her desserts. Um, you know, she's, she's clearly trying to make these things available um, to the average, uh, you know, cook with a, with a radio. I think that's, that's the clear message of her program. Right. And, of course, it, it came, you know, interwar period, and uh, so there's no mention of rationing. So there's, there are eggs right. being used. There's, you know, there's sugar being used. There's, you know, well, eggs would have been used anyway, but there is mm-hmm. sugar being yeah. used, and, and uh, but not, sugar as you say, not, meat, a lot, not uh, a lot. Yeah, these things that would have been, like you said, uh, uh, the product of, of hooverizing or of uh, conservation a few years earlier are now widely available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're exactly right. Yeah, very interesting. I'm just, I was surprised at the, I would have expected the the recipes, I guess, to be um, even simpler than they are. And these were quite, quite elaborate for that period of time, I thought. Um, And yet, you know, they, 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 you know, smacked of the, that period of cooking, that type of cooking. I just think of, you know, like sort of middle of the road cooking where it wasn't, not using a lot of spices, which were not part of the, you know, the regular pantry. And um, we've graduated, I think, in this country in our cooking and using a lot more mm-hmm. herbs and spices. But they yeah. were very well-rounded and well-balanced. Well, well-balanced was important. And if anyone yeah. picks up a cookbook from that period of time, it's, mm-hmm. you. I mean, it's almost they've all been taken from the same page. It, they're housekeeper's books. They're not mm-hmm. just strictly cookbooks, much like she presented on the show. I think it's it's very right. interesting. Yeah. And and I think Aunt Sammy saw her role, and, and the, the women that created her program saw their role really as educators. And I think that speaks to your to your point that um, you know one of the little stories that Aunt Sammy tells is how excited her neighbor was to have a washing machine. And uh, so it is in many ways a kind of she's kind of a technological ambassador. You know, she's she's introducing the idea that. Uh, not just around in, around cooking and not just around new you know kitchen appliances, although that's very prevalent pressure cookers and waffle irons things like that um, but it's also the idea that there's this whole new way of creating a home that you have available to you that perhaps your your parents and grandparents did not and uh, this is even before Aunt Tim went on the air, this is very much a, a part of the USDA's mission. For instance, they had women wear uh, primitive pedometers. I'm thinking in my mind of kind of like a Fitbit, you know, sort of like (laughs) an earlier version of that. And they calculated that one Montana woman walked a quarter of a mile around her kitchen to bake a pie. And so one of the things the USDA and Aunt Sammy talk about is how to design your kitchen. Mm -hmm. It's almost like basic, uh, you know, architecture, you know, how to design, how to lay out your kitchen, um, step-saving uh, kitchen plans. Right. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's partly about the prevalence of the radio and the, the, the new medium, how exciting Americans were to be able to listen to this program. But it's also about this message, the idea of modernity and right. Which, which, yeah, translated into efficiency and time saving. All right, let's let's talk about the phenomena as we wrap up here, just to Mm -hmm. give people an idea of how popular her show was. So, in the end, how many? Where was it broadcast? Through how many networks? And what were any estimate of listeners? 
Um, it was, we know that it was broadcast throughout the country, and it even reached, like you said, the territories of, uh, of Hawaii, and that half a million of the original uh, cookbooks were given out. So that gives a sense of how many people were, uh, were listening, uh, and that Americans are buying millions of radios. By 1927, Americans have bought six million radios, something that wasn't even uh, a household technology at the dawn of the 20s is now in millions of homes and sparks entirely new industries. Um, so there are about 200 or more stations carrying housekeepers chat uh, by the 1920s, and that number goes up. And I don't go into this detail in the book, but the power of radio signals is so much stronger than those today. So uh, it's likely that you know, likely you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, have access to this daily radio program. That shows hmm. its popularity. All right. Daily Show. All right. And they saved time and, and made life more efficient so they could spend more time listening to the radio. <laughs> I think that's a big part of it, yeah. Well, and Tim even says, look, invite your friends over. And so that makes it kind of like, you know, inviting people around your living room just like she has her supporting characters around right, her. Right, right. Well, it's a, a charming story and, and very um, enlightening uh, view on, on what was going on, really, in terms of... of the domestic life in the 20s and it really quite paints quite a, a very vivid picture and i thank you for digging those out and doing your research and and bringing this all to light and i of thank course. you yeah and i thank you for sharing your time today with us on a taste of the past thank that's justin nordstrom the name of the book again is aunt sammy's radio recipes the original 1927 cookbook and housekeeper's chat and that's from the university of arkansas press and Again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.